out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. And as always, you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the producer, Stephen Street, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life in the fast lane or sometimes the bus lane. Depends what sort of age group you are in. But anyway, this is the interview. Now, I do have a confession to make. When I um, recorded this and then played it back, I realised that my vocal doesn't exist. It's just Stephen. So I've had to um, basically sort of take his out and then I'm going to have to add a little bit of commentary um, to try and make sense of it. I think it's going to work. It's going to be a bit tricky in places and it's going to be really time consuming, but it's art. So I think we need to do it. Um, So it might be a little bit, you know, a bit jumpy in places, but it's quality chat because let's face it, he's worked with the likes of uh, the Smiths, the Triffids, Morrissey, Blur, the Cranberries, just everyone really, the Pretenders. Anyway, I could go on and on. You can, you'll see his CV and we talk a lot about those uh, different recording sessions. Anyway, this is into and this is where we would talk about the early years, the formative years. This is Stephen's response. Stephen, it's over to you. Well, when I was growing up um, uh, at home with my parents in, in the, I, I was born in 1960 and, and throughout the 60s, we didn't actually have a record player in the house, uh, but we had the radio on quite a lot. So I think without even realising, I was getting kind of, kind of, um, I was soaking in the kind of, you know, the, the pop music of the day, you know, Motown and the early, you know, Rolling Stones singles and, and Beatles tracks and things. Um, then towards the end of the 70s, my parents then they did finally take the plunge and bought uh, kind of one of those radiograms, you know, with the radio and, and the, 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 um, and so they started collecting some records. I mean, I think initially they kind of, they, they tended to buy those awful top of the pops albums, you know, those kind of um, cheap kind of compilations that were done. Um, but then, yeah, you started getting the kind of the K-Tel and the Ronco compilations and things. But the, th- but the first act that really that I kind of gravitated to and actually spent my own pocket money on and really kind of got behind was, was T-Rex. So I followed very quickly thereafter by Bowie. Uh, so I, I was a rock and a glam rock child, you know. I mean, I just, I just soaked up all that kind of music of that time, and um, so really, Barry and Bolan are the reason I am doing what I do, really. Uh, which I guess is the same for a lot of people in 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 my um, in my generation. Indeed, that is the first part, and then this is the bit where I was talking about the early glam rock years that we loved so much on Top of the Pops, and um, and if you were that generation, you had to love. Gary Glitter, let's face it, and this was Stephen responding. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, we all know kind of subsequently what happened to Gary Glitter. But you know, at the time when he first came out, that Rock and Roll uh, Part One and Two single was an uh, incredible sounding record. I, I remember it making a huge impression on, on me. And yeah, you know, and, and and like you just mentioned, the Carpenters. Yeah, that was one of the records that my parents did buy. You know, the brown one. I can't remember the actual name of it, but it was that kind of brown cover with the gold embossed on it and again i mean even though it wasn't really my kind of music i could really appreciate the quality of the production um on those records uh, and they still stand up to uh, to test you know today i mean they sound they sound wonderful still her vocal performances was something else and the 
quality of the harmonies and everything. So again, I think I think that all informed me as well, you know, as as a young person growing up and and kind of seeping kind of in, in all these kind of influences, as it were. Well, I mean, the glam thing, you know, I mean, alongside that, um, I mean, I mean, Bowie was kind of shifting and changing anyway. You know, you had this kind of thing where he went into the, the soul thing, you know, with with young Americans. but And that was always around for me as well as an influence. I mean, the, the, the funk and soul music of the 70s, we, we were lucky. Again, we had so much good quality kind of dance and soul music around at the time. Um, I remember vividly uh, being really into Earth and Fire. Uh, when they first came out uh, in the UK with their releases. Uh, this is before the disco kind of, you know, side of funk, you know, when Earth and the Fire were known to have some huge disco hits. But before that, they had some really kind of good, fantastic soul, kind of jazzy kind of uh, albums. Uh, I always remember also the first uh, Average White Band album, which was a huge album at school. When I, you know, it was one of those records that everyone really kind of got into. So it was interesting times, you know. I mean, there was the... Um, you know, we had we had had the glam. We had also had then all this kind of wonderful kind of soul and funk that was kind of kind of percolating through, and also um, you know, like your brother, I actually did get into Genesis for quite a, a while. You know, I, I remember buying selling and selling England by the pound. You know, the Peter Gabriel period of Genesis and being really into it. And um, but then you know, punk came along, and it, it was it was very refreshing. I've got to admit, and. Um, it was uh, a great, as a young kind of 17-year-old, uh, as I was at the time, 16, 17-year-old at the time, um, you know, it was it was a great kind of musical movement to kind of jump on, you know, jump in with, as it were. Although, you know, I think was probably, I think, you know, although I was still kind of, you know, collecting lots of punk records and things, uh, to kind of add to my collection and, and, and enjoying this sudden shift uh, in music, I would still at the uh, the weekend if I was going out kind of um, with mates and things go clubbing and dance to you know real kind of funky soul music you know but things like fast construction you know and then also the James Brown thing was always there you know uh, and then you get actually British bands like High Tension they came out with a fantastic record called High Tension which was just a fantastic instrumental um, um, and you know it, it was it was it was a healthy quite a healthy scene really you know and so. I, my, my my taste was quite broad in the sense I would I'd happily kind of listen to reggae, which I also got introduced to a lot through the Clash and so on, uh, and so on funk. The only thing I really never really kind of got into uh, was the, uh, the you know the kind of heavy rock, you know the kind of long haired, big hair rock kind of thing, and that's still the same to this day. You know you kind of point Van Halen towards me and I'll walk out the door. <laughs> you know a kind of. Uh, it's, it's one thing I just cannot stand at all that kind of that kind of you know music, but you know, um, but I can appreciate rock players. You know, obviously Zeppelin and Deep Purple and so on, but that's because there's probably there's a deeper underlying blues to what they do. You know, indeed. Now we get on to the early musical experience of Stephen Street and his first, yes, band which he's going to talk about in greater detail, and those early musical steps. Stephen, it's over to you. Yeah, started the Scar band and then it kind of mutated a little bit more outside, kind of away from that. But um, yeah, I, I, well, at the end of the seventies, I kind of I left work. I was a trainee surveyor, believe it or not. I left school at sixteen, went to work at the Prudential, and then um, and, but after about two and a half years working there, I thought if I don't ever make try and make the step of being a musician now, I never will. So I jacked it in and I joined a band, which wasn't very good. But then I met. Th- 
through the gigging and so on. I met this kind of singer songwriter called Bobby Henry. And Bobby had a record deal with Oval Records, which was Charlie Gillett's label. Charlie Gillett was a kind of on Radio London at the time. So, um, and then Bobby kind of on the side of that, he formed another kind of side project with this uh, guy called Cameron McVeigh. And, um, and so uh, I kind of went from being Bobby's bass player in his band to being the bass player in this new band called BIM, just B-I-M. Uh, with Cameron and Cameron actually, you know, went on to work with Naina. We well, married Naina Cherry <laughs> and worked with her in Massive Attack. So out of that band, although that band actually didn't do much uh, in itself, um, uh, kind of success-wise, two people came out of it who went off into record production and and, and did fairly well. Do I say so myself? Yeah, I mean, I think what happened was for me, I'm like, again, with this band, it kind of was all falling apart. We weren't really getting, you know, very far with it. But it was quite a healthy scene in the sense, you know, you had the, you had the new romantic scene. And um, and back then, you know, it was very tribal. You couldn't stand still. One year, ska and reggae would be really big. And then the next year, you know, it would be, you know, a complete shift. And there would be like this new kind of movement with the, you know, like, as I say, with the new romantics and so on. It was it was exciting you could be, being at a record and two years later it would sound very dated because everything had completely changed you know um but what was really evident coming out of that especially with the new romantic thing was the use of drum machines really coming in you know the electro scene the hip-hop electro scene in in, in, uh, in new york was beginning to kind of use drum machines in a new and interesting way and so i thought well you know for me um i thought if i could learn how to um, you know, use the recording studio properly, uh, that I could perhaps follow in the footsteps of some of these young producer engineers that were inspiring to me at the time, like Martin Hannett, Martin Russian, Steve Lilly White. There was a kind of collection of younger producers that were, you know, really creating some fantastic sounding records using all this new techno- technology that was beginning to kind of, you know, come through. So that was it, really. I, I quit the band I was in, and, and I fortunately did manage to get a job working as an assistant engineer at uh, Island Records in their in their basement studio, uh, which is right below the record label. And from there, I started to talk about Jimmy Iovine and um, the character that uh, he is, which is kind of quite a hustler. And I asked Stephen if he too was a bit of a hustler. This is his response. Indeed, we find out. Well, when I, hustled, I mean, I managed to talk my way into getting a job. I mean, they were looking for a new engineer, a new assistant. At the time, Ireland were refitting the studio. So I went along and I managed to kind of obviously come over as a very keen young man who was, you know, kind of keen to really get involved. And I remember the first job I had when I got there was uh, varnishing the wood that was going up on the on the studio walls. Um, so I felt like I was part of the team that had built that new studio. So I felt very kind of involved. And, and the other good thing was is that for a while, while I was the only assistant there, so I was working on a lot of sessions. And also the engineers, I, 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 the engineers that I was working with, um, they were, were very, um, were very good. They weren't just treating me like a tea boy, you know, go and make me a cup of tea or whatever. You know? I was actually getting hands on, you know, and getting involved in setting up the microphones and you know setting up things on, on the desk, you know, plugging in effects and so on. So I managed to learn pretty quickly. I'd, I had had some studio experience, you know, on the other side of the glass, as it were, you know, as a musician in the band that I was in, because we had recorded an album. 
uh, but it hadn't it didn't really do anything so but that gave me enough of a flavor to understand how the studio kind of operates you know the etiquette you know what you do and what you don't do in the studio as far as you know the relationship between an assistant and the engineer and the producer and the artist you know so um yeah, I just kind of managed, I was very fortunate, you know, I got, I, I kind of I climbed the ladder fairly quickly at Ireland, but then the next big break that I got, which was the massive big break, was then the Smiths coming in to do a session, and then and that changed everything for me, really. But you would get some records that would kind of cross over between the two. I mean, I'm thinking of things like uh, like the Associates, you know. Um, I mean, that was an incredible sounding record, you know, Party Fears too, you know. And again, that had a hint of that had a hint of um, you know new romantic in it, you know the, the dance floor, you know the bass line and everything. But then he had traces of Bowie in it, you know, with Billy's vocal styling, and you know there was something about it that was also a little bit kind of like public image, you know, post punk. I mean, it was just wonderful, you know. And there were some great records that were regarded as indie, you know, alternative in inverted brackets that actually were incredibly well produced, you know, and they weren't as bombastic and saying as, as shiny and as polished as the Trevor Horn records, but they still, you know, stood up. I, I would include Echo and the Bunnyman in that. I mean, the Echo and the Bunnyman records sound incredible. Still do to this day. Yeah, I mean, sometimes people can overthink things a little bit and complicate things. And uh, it, it is something that if you can get it, if everyone's really feeling kind of, um, you know up for it as it were and you've got a good session and everyone's in a good mood and and, and the band know that you know they've got the kind of they've got their parts together then really it's it's good to let it flow as much as you can because you do get those wonderful little kind of uh, nuances that make uh, the, the record sound fresh whereas when it's been hashed over time and time and time again in the studio you know it might sound perfect as far as you know everything is in its right place but it it just kind of it makes it sound flat you know so that, that's it's always a dilemma that to this day that one, one is always fighting with when when making a, a record. At that point, I interject about those kind of, especially those 80s uh, reggae bands that, you know, people like John Peel played, like Sly and Robbie, and also Black Uhuru and King Sonny Day, And uh, these were uh, artists that um, Stephen Street had worked on, and this was his response. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I, you know, when King Sonny Day came over from uh, from Nigeria with his band, and actually came in one night to do a session in, in the Fallout Shelter, which is the name of the studio where I was based at Ireland, and you know, it was just uh, just to see these the noise that these people made when they just kind of got together was just incredible. You know, you just you just you just set up the microphones and just hit record, and it was just sounded fantastic. You know, there just there was this natural balance that they found between themselves and their performance uh, that's not to dismiss the great work that Goblin Lodi the engineer that you know recorded those sessions did I mean you know it, it, you, you know you want to make sure you capture it right but the, the, so much of the sound and the groove just comes from their fingers as they play it was just wonderful I just felt like it was yeah I kind of felt I was bit, sometimes you feel like you're on a wave and you just want to fall off you know you kind of want to run with it and obviously the Smiths thing was a huge thing for me um and so, you know, I just I just wanted to make sure that every time I was in the studio with them, I just, you know, I just didn't mess up. And I managed to, you know, I managed to kind of capture it as well as I could. And 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 and, and I think, you know, it was great. It was because, you know, Johnny and myself and Morrissey and, you know, Andy and Mike, we were all roughly in the same age group, you know. Um, I'm a little bit older than Johnny, but I think I'm about the same age as Morrissey. And, and, um, 
And it was just felt like kids in the toy shop, you know, like with no adults around. It was fantastic, just kind of making records and you know, doing what we wanted. And, and, and it's just it, it was just a wonderful time. I, I look back on it. I mean, you know, there was no rules, really. I mean, like, like, like when we did The Queen is Dead, you know, it was, again, that was just, just experimenting with a little kind of drum loop. And Johnny had this idea. He wanted to start off with this feedback note just ringing. And, you know, uh, he, he, he had a general idea where he wanted to do the song. But really, it just came together one afternoon in the studio. Um, um, and it just no one no one questioned it, really. It just kind of it just flowed and ran, ran out of our kind of fingers as we, as we were working together. Uh, it's hard to describe, but, you know, it just it, it, it just think, how do we do that? You know, <laughs> but it's kind of I don't remember kind of ever sitting there really, really and kind of scratching our heads and kind of thinking about anything too hard. I just think we just went with the flow, you know. I mean, to be honest with you. It's very hard to appreciate one's own work as much as someone else can because you always tend to kind of, kind of break it up a little bit into its component parts and you always kind of got a little bit of doubt. Um, I don't really listen to my own records for pleasure. I, I find it kind of, I think when I'm working on something and I'm mixing it, I think well, that's one of the best things I've ever, I've ever done. And then I'll finish it and then I'll listen back to it and I go, oh God, I can hear all the things that I'd like to try and fix in it, you know? And so I really enjoy it. it I, I, I and then years later, if I hear it by chance, you know, coming out of a, a, a record shop or a, a, you know, a nightclub or whatever, and you, or a radio, and you hear it by chance, that's when I can enjoy it again because I hear it like a punter again, you know. I don't and, and dissect it so much. Um, it's, as I say, I, I kind of find it frustrating sitting down and listening to my own work closely and intently because I just tend to kind of pick it apart. So um, it's it's kind of it's it's a bit of a kind of a, a poison chalice really <laughs> producing them it's in the sense that it's hard to really really you know enjoy your own ones really you're always kind of self-consciously comparing it to someone else that you put you know whose work that you like well obviously one wants to keep busy but i think you you've got to work on things that you feel natural and empathy with because if you don't you won't end up doing a good job on it as far as being you know the producer of that particular record or whatever so um, obviously, when the Smith broke up, I had the, you know the next big thing that happened for me was co-writing and producing the early Morrissey solo stuff, which was a, a huge gamble because if that had failed, I would have been Public Enemy number one. You know, knowing how much the Smiths were revered at the time, um, but fortunately that did that you know that didn't happen. It worked out. You know, I'll, you know the singles that I wrote with Morrissey in the first kind of year and a half of his solo career all were all fine records i think you know i'm very proud of them uh so that kind of bought me some time as it were um but then you know uh, the 90s yeah i mean i mean i hooked up with blur and and it you know it just felt so natural because to me they were just like a a kind of a continuation of the smiths in the sense that there were a four-piece band there was there were lots of parallels you know two very very strong-minded uh and fantastic um, um frontmen two fantastic guitar players you know, <laughs> you know johnny and then graham cox and, and then you know great fantastic rhythm uh, bass player you know andy and you know Je uh, alex james it was just like and you know it it, it was it there were many com um, parallels that i found a, straight away i found a real natural empathy with and although this was like post the kind of the mad chester scene you know which where everything was kind of you know kind of that kind of baggy kind of um, kind of drummed, looped sound thing, you know, the vibe at the time. Um, 
um, it just, I just, just, I just felt kind of a, a click with them, you know, straight away. And uh, so um, it was just one of those wonderful things. And then again, also with the Cranberries, I mean, like the Cranberries were huge Smiths fans. And although technically Noel couldn't play as well as, Johnny, there was something about the way he played that was, you know, nod towards what the Smiths did, and so again, I could found, I found I could, um, you know, really help them get their sound together because I, you know, I understood what it what it was they were kind of aiming towards. Well, because when 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 he wrote to me, yeah, I mean, he wrote to me. Uh, I, I sent him some ideas because I thought I thought the Smiths were going to reform within six months, you know, of the initial breakup. So I was I just forwarded him some ideas on like a cassette uh, of, of some things which I thought he might find useful for writing. For B-sides, because when we finished Strange Ways, there weren't really any extra tracks left over for the B-sides, for the singles and so on. Uh, and then so when he wrote back to me and said, actually, I want to do a solo record and I want to work with you, you know, with this material that you're giving me, I was completely, you know, shocked. I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, it was a nice shock, you know, but, but it was like, well, where do we go now? This is like, it's quite scary. So I, I, I basically gave up all the other production I was doing at the time and just focused purely on sitting at home in between when I'm not in the studio, trying to come up with new ideas and so on and so forth. And he made it quite clear at this time also he didn't want to work with Mike and Andy. He wanted to work with, you know, a fresh kind of slate, as it were. So I knew I could do the bass and I could do the rhythm guitar, but I knew I needed to get a good guitar player to kind of, you know, play, you know, to enhance the parts a bit more. So I. I've already done some work with Vinnie, you know, Jurity Cotton, so I, and I thought that's another thing, you know, Vinnie does know Morrissey through the grapevine in Manchester, so there's there's something there as a kind of a kind of link. So, uh, and I knew this session drummer called Andrew Paresi, who was a fine drummer, so I just kind of got those two in, and um, and you know, it 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 was a gamble, but it it paid off, you know, and and we kind of started on the record in October um and then you know did a couple of weeks and i went home and did some more writing went back in again in november and just before christmas we had beaver hate in the can you know it was incredible really it was so quick when the smiths first broke up um the idea was i think most idea initially was to try and keep the band going i mean you know how without joining i'm not sure but he, that's what his his intention was and he um he had already been in touch with either um um, so we went into a studio in London for it was a weekend session. Uh, to to uh, I was brought in as the you know as the engineer to help kind of you know record it. And the idea was it was the Smiths but with Ivo instead of um, instead of Johnny. And uh, it it didn't work uh, um, out at all. In fact, on the Sunday, the second day, Morrissey didn't even show up. He just kind of phoned in that it's not working, and I'm I'm going home back to Manchester. So there we are, you know, it was just like Andy and Mike and me staring at the walls going, what are we doing now? Uh, but it was obviously, and that was that was when I sent my cassette off to Morrissey, you know, because um, you know, I didn't send it off straight away thinking, you know, oh, great, they're broken up, I'm going to sort of say, you know, I, I waited until this moment, you know, we they had tried another session with a different guitar player and it hadn't worked. So, I, well, I might as well, you know, try myself in that case. And that's, yeah, so that's what. And on that subject of Viva Hate, then I started to talk about two tracks, which were particular favourites, Angel, Angel, Down, Here We Go Together, and also Late Night, Maudlin Street, which is the epic seven-minute track, and this was Stephen's response. Yeah, well, what happened, that was, that was one of the later songs for the record. Um, and what happened was uh, we, 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 had, we had Viva 
uh, sorry, we had Spade had in the can and we had every day's like Sunday, you know, everything was kind of, we knew we had those two that were good tracks and, you know, more kind of upbeat kind of, you know, uh, other, some other upbeat songs. And Morrissey said to me, he wanted to do, I had something that was kind of uh, like a rambling mid-pacing kind of a la Joni Mitchell. And, then, and he never, he'd never mentioned Joni Mitchell to me before. Um, but I could see, that it, but, you know, he, he mentioned kind of, you know, he, that he did like, um, you know, Joni Mitchell's work, and and I can see why because both, I mean, both of them are fantastic lyrically, aren't they? I mean, Morrissey's a genius lyrically, so, so Joni, you know, and um, and there was this kind of, so I kind of listened to her work for a couple of days and kind of got this kind of impression of kind of this kind of I had this vision of uh, of it being a, just a relentless kind of pat, uh, loop because sometimes the songs do that, you know, they're kind of uh, is it the Hiraja album? It would just drift along. There wouldn't be an, an obvious verse or chorus or anything. It would just be a chord sequence where she would kind of, you know, recite the song over it. And so I, I, I didn't worry about writing a song so much with, a, you know, standard, you know, here's the verse, here's the bridge, here's the chorus. I just kind of wrote this kind of chord sequence that kept going back around on itself. I had this kind of, I started actually off with a, initially with a percussion loop, which is what you hear at the beginning of the track. Um, because that was my starting part, but rhythmically I'll make it interesting, and then so the chords can just kind of circle round and round and round and just see where we go with it. And I sent that off to him, and he loved it. So it was just like, well, great. Uh, and then when we got in the studio, Vinny ad ad added this kind of piano uh, part to the, um, to the, which really helped it as well. But the dum ja, dum ja, ga, 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 yeah, that rhythm, the bass and the loop and everything was all taken from what I wrote at home and the basic chord sequence. Um, I noticed that she was a great lover of using sus4 chords and so I started, uh, there was, and I just, I just basically kind of like, it was one of those great songs that came out of nowhere really towards the end of the session and, and, and for me it's one of the highlights of the record. Wise choice. Now we get into the next subject which is um, production, especially something that's um, been sort of come up quite a few times on these interviews, uh, especially with drummers, is the click track, which has often caused a lot of issues and problems with various bands and obviously those who sit behind the drum kit. This is Stephen's response. Uh, you've got to be careful. I mean, obviously, click tracks, um, you know, everyone got used to hearing click tracks because everyone wanted their work to be regular so that if it was remixed by someone, you know, this is the of the 12 inch single remix you know <laughs> don't forget where so and, and and so things would have to be really kind of quite metronomic in in, in, in you know um so it was one of those things that everyone kind of got sucked kind of really sucked up into for a while but i i i found that later on um that really what i found was that often click tracks can really help sorry they can stop um, the the flow of a song because some songs do need to have a flow and ebb you know um, um, and so I find with click tracks if it works for a song great if it's really stopping the song fly then just use it for the beginning of a song you know, just to count you in so that every take starts roughly at the same tempo but once the song gets going just take it out again and let the song go live you know so it depends it's different horses for different courses you know because um, it, 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 as I say, some songs really do require to be really solid and the same tempo all the way through, but some songs need to kind of be let free and, and, and flow. 
And so uh, there's no hard and set rule, really, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but it was a fashion at the time. I think everyone, I mean, everyone really did kind of expect, you know, if you were, if you were kind of employed by a record label to produce a band in the studio, they, ex- they expected it to be really like on the, on the, you know, on point, on the money, you know, rhythm-wise and tempo-wise. And sometimes some drummers would be happy with that, and they would, they would rise to the challenge and they would really go for it. But then some drummers would go, "Oh, this click track is making it impossible for me to play." So you, sometimes you're kind of, you know, you got to choose which way you're going to go. This is true. Now the next part of the interview goes towards the world that is kind of um, what what the atmosphere is sometimes like in the studio, and um, and when there's certain sessions that you might sort of find that um, it's not feeling that harmonious. Is it Stephen? I'm sure you've been there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not a nice situation to be in. I mean, actually, I mean, when we did Strange Race, actually, everything was fine in the studio. The actual, um, you know, a lot of people think that there were problems and there weren't really between the band. It was just really what was going to happen next. Uh, it was just one of those things about management, you know, and Morrissey didn't like the new manager and Johnny wanted the manager because he was fed up dealing with all the, you know, the bullshit that goes on around, um, you know, being in a band. So, um, you know, um, it's not it's not fun. That's for sure. If, if there's if there's if there's a lot of um, grievances being expressed in the studio between different band members, it make, you know creates a, 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 an atmosphere which is not conducive to making great records. That's for sure. Um, I mean, sometimes every now and then you'll get you'll see a bit of tension, and that's one part of the job of being a producer. You know, it, I mean, I've said before in many interviews, a lot of production is man management, and sometimes you. Know, you've got to know when to slip in it's not knowing how to kind of get a great reverb or you know get a fantastic guitar sound it's actually some of the time it's actually dealing with people's um you know kind of moods and and getting still getting the best out i mean i always try to uh well as soon as i got to the point where i was producing records and i was in charge of the session as it were i always used to say i'm not working weekends i mean one because i had a young family at the time and i wanted to be at home also, I found that people that, that didn't take weekends off, they just burnt out quickly. You know, no one's going to, you just become a martyr and you just, you just end, you just end up burnt out. You, you really can't see the wood for the trees and, 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 and you just lose perspective. So, um, yeah, I just kind of, you know, I also decided I wasn't going to do all night sessions. I mean, sometimes if you're working in a residential studio, you know, you might want to keep going on to the early hours of the morning because, you know, what else is there to do? And, and also, you know, it's just sometimes that's the vibe you get in those kind of places. But when I was working, you know, at home uh, in London, in the London studios and so on, I'd kind of try and be in the studio at about 10 in the morning and finish at about 8 or 9 at night. It's a long enough day. Long enough day to get them. And if you go all night, all you do is end up come, all you end up doing is coming in later the next day. So you don't get any more work done. And I just think it's good for people to actually go home and just be in their own environment for a little while each night before they come in the next day. And that's something I instilled in Blur when I first worked with them. And that's something that Damon does to this day. And Damon's the most productive musician that I know. And he he gets in the studio, you know, 9.30 in the morning, he's gone at six. And yet, you know, he, he treats job it's work you know i mean you know it's to say you got to, you know you can't you can't write it in in blood as you were and say that's it we're not going to do anything past the time of you know seven o'clock at night you can't do it like that you've got to be you know you've got to be flexible but as a way of generally conducting sessions and to make sure that a i never go over budget which is the band's money so i'm always conscious of that and uh, and and you know also wanting to make sure that 
it's a, a pleasurable experience that we can look back on and say, there, that was fun. Um, I, I try and kind of, as I say, you know, do about 10, 10 hours a day in the studio, and that's enough. You know, it really is. I don't. I think once you start going past that, people just get burnt out. They really do. Another band that uh, we all loved in the 80s, especially me, was the Triffids, all the way from Australia, who brought out uh, Born Sandy Dev- Devotional in about 1986. And this was... Uh, not. This wasn't the follow-up album. This was their last one. This was um, The Black Swan, and this was um, asking... Stephen, what his response was an experience. That's one. I enjoyed working on that record. I mean, David uh, McComb, you know, God bless his soul. Um, fantastic writer. Uh, I loved working. That was a residential session. We went down to this fantastic uh, kind of um, old uh, courthouse, I think it was, in down in West Country that had been turned into a, stu- a studio. And so uh, for that record, yeah, we, we, it was the, the, the hours were later. You know, we'd work kind of say, you know, like a, until about midnight most most nights, you know, and then just sit around and have a few drinks together and just unwind and listen back to what we'd done during the day. Um, so, it, well, and that was, and the band, you know, they just had such a natural feel as a bunch of musicians playing together. Um, that and the Triffids. I loved them. I thought they were a fantastic uh, uh, outfit. I really did. Indeed. Now, as we talk, um, go towards the end of the interview, we, um, yes, get into that world that is kind of the lucky, well, not lucky breaks, but just breaks and, uh, yes, taking opportunities, as so many people do and so many people don't. But this was uh, Stephen's response to that. Uh, yeah, I guess really. I mean, I mean people say, no, you, you know, yeah, you're, you're lucky you got this, you're lucky you got that. But I always say you do make your own luck. And I think if you work on projects and just give give your all and really, really kind of like, you know, uh, as I say, without being a martyr, and without burning out, but if you can give your all and really just be someone just try and keep one step ahead of what's required uh, in the studio. Um, to, I'm thinking particularly like when you're a young engineer and you're working with a, a more uh, experienced um, producer or engineer, if you can kind of keep one step ahead and, and always be able to kind of judge what's needed, then uh, I think you, it's noticed and, and you will get somewhere. And I think that's what hopefully I like, I like to think will happen for me really. Uh, and don't be, a, you know, and, and you know, excuse my language, but don't be a dick to people. <laughs> yeah, you, know, um, you know, try and be someone that you, you can get your point across uh in in a positive way rather than just picking holes in it and not giving a positive reason for a choice or decision that you're going to make you know say well okay this is good but how about we try it like this you know try and think of things positively positively to say rather than just negative i mean sometimes yeah you get your moments and you just go we're banging our head against a brick wall here and and the thing is then really and again especially if you are the producer uh, uh of that particular session you've got to know when to say okay fine let's just Let's go down another route now. Let's do something else. Let's go somewhere different, you know, rather than, you know, banging your head against a brick wall. So, again, that's something that you've got to do, really, because um, there's always going to be some point on a record where, you know, you try something and it's not working. And, and you know, but rather than kind of uh, kind of wallowing in, 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 in negativity uh, and then, you know, beginning to kind of, um, you know, perhaps dislike other people, uh, you've got to think about okay. Let's well, let's think about you know what this 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 just think positively. Let's go somewhere different. Let's kind of let's go on to a new song or whatever. Or I'll take an early you know an early break or something, 
and, and try and work a way around it, you know. And this is uh, probably the point where I mentioned the wonderful Brian Eno and his uh, David Bowie period in the late 70s of being experimental in the studio. And um, what Stephen's response to that was, is this. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that happens sometimes, you know. As I say, when I did the Blur album, the Blur Blur album, um, I bought uh, this new recording system, which was called Radar, which was like a hard drive recording system, which enabled me to kind of record them, um, you know, and I was able to edit things really easily because before one would have to cut the two-inch tape, you know, and that, that was much more, you know, fraught with danger, really, you know, getting things wrong. And Whereas this, you could, you know, edit and undo edits and stuff. And it was and just it was kind of experimenting, really, with the recording of a, a drum loop that we did at the beginning of song two. And I just, you know, I was just experimenting. I uh, recorded a little bit of, of um, Dave and Graham hitting the drum kit using just the room mic in the studio and kind of I was just playing around with it on this system and recorded it and just looped it and that was the rhythm that we heard at the beginning of song two you know um, it kind of song two without that drum, drum, song two without that drum little drum loop wouldn't be the same song you know well no I mean the only thing that was in my mind when I was recording with with Blur and obviously was when I was first worked with them it was to make sure because you know I was given the chance to work with them just as a kind of trial session really and that that trial session was there's no other way so that kind of worked straight away but I wasn't in the frame for the second album believe it or not it was I think they were going to work with Andy Partridge and um and it was just a couple you know a, a series of uh, consequences ended up with me actually getting back involved with Blur again and being in. So when I worked with them on, on uh, Modern Life is Rubbish, I just wanted to make sure that you know, I didn't mess up you know, and, and make sure that now that I was in the seat, that I stayed there, you know. Um, and so it was just pressure, really, more than anything else. So I didn't you know, I didn't, I, 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 when we were doing Modern Life is Rubbish, we weren't, weren't thinking about Oasis at all. Uh, the only band, really, that was really registering at the time that was making waves was Suede. And they were great. I mean, those few suede, um, well, all their, but those particularly early singles they put out were just such great kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of standard. Because that's such a great standard that you just sort of okay, we got, you know, that someone's someone's raising the bar here. We've got to make sure that we can compete. So you know, that was um, that was the thing. And then when we got round to modern life, is so when we got round to park life, um, you know, it was aware. I was aware rather that, you know, Blur were something quite important. And then although Modern Life is Rubbish hadn't been a huge commercial hit, we could tell something was happening. There was a change, you know, people were playing their records on the radio and so on. And um, and I, I always remember when we had recorded um, Girls and Boys, I said to Damon, you know, this, could, this is going to be a top five hit, I'm sure of it. I just had to could just feel it in my bones and sure enough it was. And, so it was a wonderful period of time back then making records um, with, with either Blur or Sleeper or the Cranberries. So it was wonderful. You just knew that at the end of it, that the chances were you're going to get it, hear it played on the radio, uh, and you, which is not the case anymore. I mean, most of the records I've worked on, I mean, post really Kaiser Chiefs' first album that I, and second album that I work on, um, you know, in the last kind of in the last eight years or so, I'm working on records now, and you, you're never sure whether you're going to hear them in the radio anymore. I mean, radio once changed beyond, you know, um, you know, it just it just can't, it doesn't sound the same anymore to me. You know, it's completely moved on to something else. So it's a shame. 
Indeed, it has moved on and uh, we're just left behind. Anyway, look, we then get into the world that is um, Chrissy Hines, The Pretenders, and Andy Rourke, who occasionally appeared or did in the early days with The Pretenders. Stephen, it's over to you. Well, no, when I saw Andy, I mean, I didn't, I've actually worked with Chrissy again on a new album, which is coming out next month. Um, and, um, you know, and it's always a thrill working with her. I mean, she's a, you know, she's a tough cookie, is Chrissy, but, you know, I'll get on, I'll get on well with her. Um, and uh, to be honest with you, the, the, the session I did with Andy back in the 90s, it was in the 90s, I think, um, and he played on a few tracks on, on, on the album. Uh, it was great. We got on fine, Andy. And I said, it was just like, you know, yeah, you know, nice to see you again. And yeah, he came in and did his session. But I always got the impression he wouldn't be along for, he wouldn't be around for very long in the Pretenders. I think it was just a thing he was passing through, you know? Uh, I knew he wouldn't be there for very long, and, and that's how it proved. Yeah, um, I've, I've been making a record with, um, um, there's a band called Bradford that were on my label at the end of the 80s. And, and uh, Ian, the songwriter, the singer and songwriter, and you and the guitar player uh, got in touch with me last year and they sent me some ideas that they were working on. And I really thought they had some great potential. So we've kind of joined forces and made a Bradford Mark II kind of between the three of us. And uh, we've got a new album that is just literally being mastered now. And I'm um, going to be looking to getting that out over the uh, well, couple of singles, first of all, and perhaps early next year, get the album out there. So and I'm very proud of it. I think it's a good record. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Right. Just one last bit. And then it's all over. It's been a long session. Yes, we talk about uh, Stephen's uh, time running a record label. Uh, I don't know, actually. Looking back on it, it was just a good way of, uh, of spending money. <laughs> uh, I don't think I, I, you know, as I say, looking back on it, I think what I should have done is really try and got a label to a bigger label to have funded it, you know, and and like and, and, and licensed it. And, uh, but uh, I don't know, it was just one of those things we tried, and I, I, I had this dream of becoming a new rough trade, but it didn't quite work out. <laughs>